you have your Bibles, let's go over to Hosea. Hosea chapters 4 to 6 is our text this morning. I have two questions for you as we start our journey into the passage today. The first question is this. If you want someone to listen to you, what do you do in order to be sure that they're really going to hear you? If you're a parent and you have a little child, you might grab their sweet little face and say, look at me in the eyes, give me your eyes, right? Give me your eyes as you're instructing them. If you're a, uh, if you're a junior high uh, teacher and you know that some students are talking in the back of the class, you might suddenly stop your lecture and let the odd, awkward silence of the moment make the students realize that something's going on. If you're, um, if you're part of a school system and you're trying to um, help students in an assembly understand the dangers of, um, let's say, drug abuse. You might bring somebody in to talk about their former life, or if you're part of like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, maybe you bring a, a, a broken and just completely trashed car into the parking lot in order to help students to see the effects of underage drinking and driving. So the, the point is, is that we try different things in order to help to get through sort of just the ears and then get to the heart. Second question, how do you know if somebody really has listened to you? So the first question is, how do you help someone to really listen? Then how do you really know if they've listened? So imagine, for instance, you're having coffee with a young person that you're discipling. Say it's a young man. And there's some things that you've observed in his life, and you really want to speak into those things. As you begin to share those thoughts with him, how do you know if he's really listened? Like, really listened? It could be perhaps that he can communicate what you've said but put it in his own words. Maybe he applies what you've said in some area that you weren't thinking. But the single greatest demonstration that your communication has been effective and the person has really listened is after that meeting, does he change? You know that you've been heard and you know that the person has really listened if that person changes. The Bible has a word for this. It's the word repentance. This morning in the book of Hosea, we're going to wrestle with this word, repentance. A fair warning, we're stepping into some heavy sections of this minor prophet book, and yet the tone, the tenor, and the message in this section of scripture is really important, and here's why. Because repentance is a critical part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Repentance is a critical aspect of what it means to genuinely profess Christ as Savior and as Lord. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson defines repentance this way, that repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. So to follow Jesus means that we've embraced repentance, that repentance is a gift, a gift from God, that you don't accept Jesus as your savior without also accepting him as Lord. That repentance at some level needs to be a part of what it meant for you to come to Christ, but it also needs to be a part of your ongoing experience, your ongoing practice of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In the same way that, that fidelity in marriage means you understand your marriage commitment, in the same way that repentance means that we understand God's place in our lives. 
But if we're honest, the challenge is is that there's times in our life because of just sort of the drumbeat of culture, the reality of the waywardness within us, we can kind of get into a place where it's been a long time since we've really embraced repentance. It's been a long time since we've kind of made a turn and we left things behind us. And then we begin to look at the culture around us and we see that that's pretty much standard fare in the entire culture. So you begin to feel fairly normal. And in the midst of that, God's word comes in and the question that we have for us in Hosea is are we listening? Because the reason that God uses the example of a prophet marrying a prostitute, and the reason that we have heavy words in chapters four, five, and six, is because the heart of the people of Israel had grown dull. They're a long ways from a repentant sort of mindset. The prosperity of their culture, the waywardness of their ways, sort of, sort of lulled them into this spiritual lethargy where it had been a long time since they had returned to the Lord. And so what we have here in our text today is essentially this, church. We have a warning about not listening. And what I hope today happens through these fairly heavy chapters is that you ask yourself this question. Does my culture listen to the word? Does my church listen to the word? Does my small group listen to the word? Does my family listen to the word? Do I listen to the word. I want you to think about listening at all of those levels this morning as we we see that God gave us this example of Gomer and Hosea because there's something about the people of God that he wants us to realize, something he wants us to understand, but even more, there's something that he wants us to feel. So today I want to unpack the waywardness of Israel in order to help us to think through Are we listening? Am I listening? And then what does that mean? Let's start first with, there's a summary of their waywardness in Hosea chapter four, verses one to three. So take your Bible and let's look at this. This first section here is designed to be an encapsulation of Hosea's message. First three verses says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Notice that first word, chapter four, verse one, hear. Look at chapter five and verse one. Put your finger on it. It says, hear. So hear the word of the Lord, O children. Hear this, O priest. And then if you flip over to chapter six, put your finger on the first word of chapter six and verse one. Come, let us return to the Lord. So you can see that the, the posture of this prophetic witness, beginning in chapter four, continuing in chapter 11, that's the first section, And then in chapter 12 to the end of the book, those are two different collections of messages to the people of Israel. This first one involves the invitation for people to hear, for them to listen. The tone of this text is a warning. God wants his people to understand the problem. And they need need the kind of clarity that God's word will bring. Do you know that you and I need that kind of clarity on a regular basis? We need the word in our lives because our minds and hearts tend to believe the own narrative that we create inside of ourselves. If we're left to ourselves, we'll be convinced that we're pretty good people. We're better than most. Look at the world, look at the culture, look at what I'm doing. Or we'll begin to just simply believe sort of the 
the worldview that is around us will just sort of get sucked into the cultural air around us, not even realizing how far we may have strayed. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy. That's a very important word. It's a word that means legal proceedings. The idea is that God has a problem with what's going on in Israel. He has an indictment. That's why the New American Standard translates this word as a case. The Lord has a case against Israel. Or NIV says God has a charge against the people of Israel. The idea is they're being summoned to court and that God has a quarrel with them. Now God loves his people, but he loves them enough to tell them that something is wrong. Some of you men, you won't go to the doctor. And the reason you don't want to go to the doctor is because you don't want to know the truth. You, you don't want to know what's really wrong. You don't want to know what's, what's really happening on the inside. can't tell you how many times I've prayed with a, a wife who says, would you pray with me? My husband needs to go to the doctor and he won't go. And so this text is designed to be like a physician, like an x-ray. Helps us to see who we are, to see what we're like. Notice the failings of their culture. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. No knowledge of God in the land. These are summary statements of what is supposed to be the characteristic pattern of their relationship with their God. They're supposed to be marked with the kind of words that mark the covenant, like faithfulness, like steadfast love. These are, these are summary words, words that fit with God's own character. In fact, when God passed in front of Moses or when Moses was in the cleft of the rock and God's back was to Moses, the Lord announced in that moment in Exodus 34, the Lord abounding in steadfast love and abounding in faithfulness. So these are, this is what the people of God are supposed to be like, and yet God says, but you're not like this. What's more, there's no knowledge of God. They don't know about him. They don't have intimate relation with him. There's no closeness with their creator. The fact of the matter is, is they're, they're a long ways from the Lord. They've drifted. That describes where some of you are this morning, I would imagine. You're here, and I'm so glad you are. You're listening, and I'm glad you're doing that. But the, the reality is, if we peeled back the layers, your heart's... Your heart's a long ways away. For any number of reasons, it's grown hard, calloused. And, and frankly, you've, you've, been, you've gotten pretty good at singing things like, no other name, no other name but Jesus. And then the reality is the rest of the week, nothing about your thinking or your mind or your heart fits with that reality. Or in some big bucket, the name of Jesus isn't even present. See, Israel's story is our story. We are Gomer. Israel is Gomer. What's more, it's not just about the, the breakage of this covenant, but there's specific disobedience areas that show up. There's swearing and lying and murder and stealing, committing adultery. So these are the, there's five of the Ten Commandments here, which represent the, the basic relationships that are supposed to be a, a part of what it meant to be the people of God. But God's law and his definition of what is right and what is wrong is being removed from their culture. 
Does this sound familiar? And not just culturally, does this sound familiar even in your own life and your own experience? Have you lied this week? Have you said things with your mouth that Jesus would constitute as murder? Things that you've stolen? Have you committed adultery in mind and heart or maybe even actually? See, these are the things that are characteristic of Israel and which is why Hosea is talking to them in such strong terms. It says they break all bonds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. In other words, there's this this ongoing disobedience, an increasing disregard for human life, a, a lack of truthfulness across the board. And then it shows up in their culture. You see, the sinfulness of the people is not just limited to their individual lives. Look at what verse three says. The land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. One of the reasons that we need minor prophets is we need the unique voice that they bring to the table. Because so often, in our 21st American setting, we think about religion, we think about spirituality, we think about even Christianity in a personal and overly individualistic framework. When somebody receives Christ, what do we say? What do we say to them? We say, do you want to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And at one level, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not the full picture. Because God's idea of redemption is not just to save individuals, his aim is to save a people. And on the other side of the equation, the reason, the reason that is the case is because sin is not just an individual problem, it's also a cultural problem. It's a global problem. It's a creation problem. That the whole world has fallen under the groaning effects of sin in the world. Take your Bible and go over to Romans chapter eight, and let's look at verses 22 to 23. This passage just continues to grip me. It's not an unfamiliar one to you, I'm sure, but I just want you to, to think about this with me in terms of what does it mean that the land mourns? And then I want you thinking with me, so does our land mourn? Does our culture mourn? Romans eight twenty two says this, for we know that the whole creation the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So if, as I understand that text, what's happening is, is that Christians who are living in the world, who understand the beauty of the gospel, we're groaning in the sense that we long for redemption to happen, but we're not the only ones that are groaning. We're groaning because we know what the effect is, but when we listen to the world, we also hear the groaning of the world. We see the brokenness and the waywardness of sin. We see the effects of sin around us. And of all people, Christians ought to be able to interpret that brokenness and say, something is just wrong. This isn't right. Text reminds us that there's something inherently broken, not only in us, but around us. Just give you a few examples. You know, we're, we're involved in the Brookside neighborhood. want to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. One of the reasons we're there is poverty and the effects of it are a symptom 
of the fall. Do you know that a person who lives on 116th Street in Monon, the average lifespan is 81 years old? But if you go down to 10th and Monon, the average lifespan is 67. Does that relate at all to the gospel? Does that relate to the brokenness of the world? Did you know that this last week, the city of Indianapolis, we crossed 100 murders in our city? Did you, when you, did you just hear that statistic and put that in your mind, like, well, that happened someplace else? If that happened in your neighborhood, you, you have a completely different perspective on it. And if you love our city and you love the people of our city and you want flourishing lives so that the gospel can be communicated, you want to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth, then it seems like some part of us, when the land mourns, like those are the things that we ought to be feeling and watching the news through a lens of, oh, that's a groan in that category. Or let me put it this way, you're driving along in the, the, the 465 and somebody cuts somebody else off and you see it and some person suddenly engages in road rage and you, you see that happen, do you immediately say, what an idiot. Or do you see that and go, yeah, that's in me too. I just didn't do what they did. See, the, the question is, is how you see the culture, how you see the world. Last Sunday night, we spent some time talking about ethnic diversity and race. And is there, is there a part of your soul that can say more than just, look, I wasn't there when slavery was a part of our nation? And can you move from beyond that and be able to groan the remaining effects of racial division, even if you don't think you were a part of the cause, even if you weren't part of the cause, can you still groan its reality and the pain and then begin to think, you know what, and there still are aspects of divisiveness even within my own soul. See, what Hosea helps us to understand, church, is this, that sin is a bigger problem than just at an individual level. That sin is a problem that's affected our entire created order, which is why the promise of the gospel is not just that Jesus comes to save individual sinners, he comes to save sinners and then to place them in the fellowship with their creator in a reconstituted heaven and earth, and he comes to dwell with them and to bring us back to the garden so that the entire created order is reformed and renewed, that sin has been completely removed out of the equation, and all of God's people have been brought back to him. God's aim it's not just to deal with the sin in you. His aim is to deal with the sin that's everywhere. So one way that we need to listen to the prophets is by realizing that the essence of Israel's problem is still our problem. How does our land groan? How do we groan? So that's the summary. So look, let's look at the scope. Now, in Hosea, we have chapter four and chapter five which identify the, the scale or the scope, if you will, of the waywardness of God's people. He speaks to them as a people who he's trying to help them understand, help them see, and help them feel the waywardness that is within them. It's interesting, in verse four, he begins with spiritual leaders. Yet, he says, let no one contend and let none accuse, for it is with you, for, 
for with you is my contention, O priest. Hosea turns his prophetic ire towards religious leaders. Why? Because, according to verse 6, the people are destroyed because of their lack of knowledge. The priests weren't giving them the word of the Lord. The priests weren't delivering them the rebukes, the instruction, the encouragement. The priests had gone right along with them in regards to their own culture. And so as a result, the text frighteningly says, I reject you from being a priest to me. But here's the news. The news is the person is still a priest. They're still functioning as a priest, but the difference is that God has rejected him as a priest. 6b tells us why. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Verse 7, the more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. It sounds remarkably similar to what Paul talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 3 to 5, where he mentions that people will heap up for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And then text says, verse 9, a frightening statement, at least for where I sit. And it shall be like people, like priests. That's a, that's a sober statement. It means that people follow their spiritual leaders. And, and whether it's a, a small group leader, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a deacon, whether it's an elder, someone who's teaching in a Sunday school class, a youth ministry leader, the people follow the spiritual direction of those who are in leadership. The priests aren't the only problem, though. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood. Their idolatry has made them so foolish that they think by praying to a piece of wood that they're going to receive what they need, or there's a spirit of idolatry that so marks the land that they try and get an oracle from a walking stick. Verses 15 to 18 tells us that Israel is stubborn like a heifer, Verse 19, the, the, the nation has been so deeply impacted that a wind has wrapped it up in its wings. The idea is it's sort of blown and tossed by every situation. And some of you may, that may be a really fitting picture, depending on who you're with and what the circumstances are, what the conversations are like. You can be one person in one setting and another person in another setting. And the idea is that this people is just blown every which way. Chapter 5, it's elevated not just to the priests, but also give ear, he says, O house of the king, for judgment is with you. So he's not only talking about priests, but also those in positions of, of, of leadership and influence. The nation is marked by a spirit of rebellion in verse 3 and 4. Their deeds, it says, do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. There's this waywardness that they just keep going the wrong direction and going the wrong direction. And so as a result, God announces some frankly, pretty frightening words, words like desolation in verse 9, punishment, wrath, oppression in verse 11, judgment in verse 11, and God has become to them like a moth in verse 12 that eats garments or dry rot that destroys wood. 
And yet in the midst of all this, when Israel realized what her problem was in verses 13 to 15, instead of returning to the Lord, she went to Assyria. They're like, we got a problem. We need a nation to come and help us. They didn't think. We got a problem. We need to submit and repent and turn back to the Lord. Their self-centeredness caused them to put their hopes in man-made solutions. Now what's the point of this? Why is this sort of text in the Bible? It's here because it's a warning. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to study this book is because I want you to be more familiar with, the, with minor prophets. Some of you don't read the minor prophets. You don't like the tone. You don't like the edge. You don't like the, 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 the statement. And the reality is you don't like the word repentance. You like forgiveness. You don't like change. You want to be sorry, but you don't want to reform your ways. You want someone to encourage you. You don't want someone to get in your stuff. And this text, Hosea, won't let us get away with that. In fact, there's a few implications of this. You know, implication number one is this. Brothers and sisters, we need a regular dose of the word, the pure word of God, the word that is read and then is able to, to strike us on the heart where we need it at times because the narrative of our own soul will begin to create a delusional sort of mentality where we've begun to move along and not realize how far we've drifted. We need the word. Secondly, this text warns us that sin is progressively pervasive, that Israel has begun to drift. And as a result, in their culture and in their land, they're no longer shocked, they're no longer outraged, they're no longer disgusted. They no longer blush over their waywardness. Their comfort level with what is sinful has become way, way, way too high. And Hosea enters in and he seems like a, like a weirdo in terms of what he's saying. But it, his word isn't that weird. It's that the people of God have so drifted that his word seems weird. And then third, you know what's interesting here? It tells us that, that leaders are accountable for waywardness. Hosea makes it really clear that if you're, a position, if you're in a position of spiritual or national or familial leadership, then you're accountable for the spiritual culture that you create. You're also accountable for the spiritual culture that you fail to create. So if you're a pastor, elder, small group leader, deacon, you're an adult Bible group teacher, you're a youth ministry leader, you we, I, can't throw my hands up and say, Lord, you know these people are so wayward. They just don't listen, they don't hear. Can't throw your hands up with a child or a son or a daughter. Say, they just won't listen to me anymore. And you just sort of, you, ab, you, 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 you walk away and you abdicate your responsibility. You, you can't do that, even though it's hard, even though they don't listen, even though there's resistance. There's a faithfulness as it relates to, no, I'm gonna keep on communicating, I'm gonna keep on saying, and I'm gonna help them to know and to love and to hear the word. If you're a parent, if you're a husband, if you're a father, you have a responsibility for setting the spiritual tone in the environment in which God has placed you. If you, in a cultural way, if you lead a business, if you have responsibilities to help write the laws of our land, listen, brother or sister, you have a responsibility before God to not just do your job well, but to do your job well as a Christian and to ask yourself, why am I in this position and how can I help my community, my culture, my city, and my nation to be able to hear the voice of God? And how can I have 
as Amos will talk about, justice and mercy roll down the mountain like a mighty stream. See, what Hosea is concerned about is the waywardness of God's people. The problem is that sometimes our fundamental waywardness is so deep that we keep trying to find every other solution except the solution right in front of us, which is we need to repent. So what's the solution? Gratefully, the text doesn't end here. With this sort of heavy tone, notice now what comes into the equation. Chapter six and verse one, come. It's an invitation, come. Come out from where you are. Come out from your waywardness. Come out from your self-delusion. Come, let us return to the Lord. This, this prophetic call is so common. The, the book of Jeremiah says things like, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Wash your heart from wickedness. In fact, Jeremiah's words will be so penetrating and so desperate that he'll say things like, there's gonna come a day when God's gonna give you a new heart He's gonna take out the heart of stone, says Ezekiel. He'll put in a heart of flesh. And you will all know me from the least to the greatest. You'll all, and I'll put my spirit in you, that there was this, this promise of what would come, that God would change people from the inside out. And do I need to remind you that that has already happened in the person and work of Christ? So if there was any generation, any group of people, any assembly of God's people that ought to embrace repentance because they can, could, and should, it ought to be us. God says, come, let us return to the Lord. Notice, he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. God doesn't deliver words like this simply because he's angry and leaves you wallowing in your discipline from him. No, God does this in order that he may heal us. He's not like your angry father of the past. He's like a surgeon who cuts with intention to heal. He struck us down that he will bind us up. And then, I love verse two. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? It's a beautiful foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus. Think of that. Jesus enters into the judgment that God has for his people. It's Jesus who is struck down. It's Jesus who was torn. It was Jesus who goes into the grave in order that out of the resurrection, God offers the opportunity for people to truly repent and truly change. Verse three, the promises of God's faithfulness. God's gonna be faithful. God's going to give grace. He says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, for his going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The idea is this, that God is gonna be faithful, and when you turn to him, he will turn to you. When you repent, he will give you grace. When you say, God, help me to change, and you confess your sins, the Bible promises he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That the person who cries out and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, God will be merciful to that person as a sinner. That's the hope. The beauty of the gospel is that the opportunity to change doesn't rest in you because repentance is a gift, and God is the one who has all the grace ready to be able to give you. And yet, notice verse four. 
So there's all of this grace. And yet, here's the reality of who we are. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. It's like a fog. Sun comes up, fog is all over the place. Maybe you, when I drove in, there was lots of fog this morning. When the sun comes up, it's gone. And God describes the love of his people like that. Oh, that's painfully accurate, isn't it? I mean, in one moment, we can be singing and saying all sorts of glorious things in the context of even this assembly together, as helpful and as wonderful as that is, and then in the next hour, we could be acting as though we're the most godless person on the planet. He says, like the dew that goes early away. The idea is it's there, and then it vanishes. Verse 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You know what that means? God wants true, genuine, heart-based commitment to him. He wants people who are genuine in their repentance, who say, we're going to return to the Lord. I'm going to be serious about my walk with Jesus. I want to seriously mend my ways. I want to turn. So let me ask you, what is it in your life that you're just not taking seriously right now? All of us, to some extent, have aspects of our life where repentance needs to be a part of what we're thinking about and what we're embracing. And the idea is that God doesn't just want singing. He doesn't just want money. He doesn't want your listening, your presence, all those things. They're not bad in and of themselves unless you're doing all of them and your heart is a million miles away and God and you know it. And so what do you do? You acknowledge it and say, God, I'm here, but I am not here. I'm reading, but I'm not reading. I'm listening, but I'm not listening. And so I confess my waywardness. I am Israel. I am Gomer. And God stands ready today to have wide open arms if you'll return to him. It's what you pray over a wayward son or daughter. God, would you help them to listen? Would you help them to hear? That you pray over them. God, use the risky prayer, any circumstance to bring them back to yourself. Make their life difficult, make it hard, because Lord, we want them to be converted. We want their heart to be back with you. And here God is standing and waiting. The solution to their waywardness was to return to the Lord. So the scandalous grace of Hosea is that God is willing and ready to pour out mercy on those who have terribly sinned against him, but he's ready that in their turning, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, he runs to them in order to welcome them back. And so the warning of Hosea 4, 5, and 6 is given with the hope that they would hear the word, and in hearing, they would turn. And I wonder if that's why you're here today. I wonder if when I talk about somebody who's here but they're not, whose heart is like granite, you know, you know, that's you. When you hear the story of Gomer and Hosea and you see the way that God buys her out of her slavery and her waywardness, you know, that's, that's me. And so the question is, what do you do? What you do is you return to the Lord. 
You confess with your mouth. You acknowledge the reality of what is true. You embrace the full repentance that God intends to be a part of your heart and life, and then you set your mind and your heart towards a different course of action, putting away the old and putting on the new. It means that you come to the terms and, and realize that the sinfulness that that is around you is not just the problem. The culture is not just the problem, that there's something wrong inside of you, and as a result, you begin to see the hope and the beautiful grace that's available to you by simply saying, I am Gomer. If you're here today and that message, that word lands on your heart, you ought to thank God that you even have the ability to hear it anymore. Oh, the number of people that I have encountered who I just felt like I was talking to a spiritual zombie. In one ear and out the other, in one ear. And you know how that happens? Because week after week, month after month, year after year, they heard the word, they listened to the word, but they didn't listen to the word, they didn't really hear the word. It went in one ear and out the other. And they became very accustomed to taking the word and keeping it at a distance. And as a result, they could sing a song and not really mean it. They could hear the word read and say, that's good, and never have it changed them. They could hear a sermon and say, that was helpful, and have it do nothing in their life. And then you take that and multiply it times a thousand and put those people in the context of churches all around our country. And you wonder why the culture of the United States no longer reflects the kind of biblical values that you would hope it would. It's not the nation's problem, it's not the cultural's problem, it's the church's problem. And do you not think that the church will be held accountable for the cultural dynamic that's around us? The church is supposed to be the preserving agent. What that means is that you are meant to be the preserving agent in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the city, that we groan with the waywardness of our culture and we look inside our own hearts and say, it's not just about the culture, it's not just about the nation, it's not just about those people, it's actually, I'm the problem. And in hundreds of thousands of moments of repentance, the church is renewed from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to return to the Lord. But my singular question is this. But are you listening? Are we listening? Oh, I hope that we are. Listening to the word that it might change us and reform us. Hosea would say, oh, let us return to the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? So now, Lord, in these next few moments, we pray that you would grant us two things. One, to feel the weight of what is needed in our repentance and then secondly, to feel the beauty of your grace and what's available to us. So thank you that your mercy balances out the heaviness of this passage. And thank you that even today, you're, you're speaking to us about our need for repentance. 
And while you just have your head bowed and your eyes closed, I wonder if there's some of you this morning who would say, man, I needed this. Because my heart, man, I'm here, but I'm not. I'm reading, but I'm not. And as an act of just sort of defiance against the pattern of your life, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to slip your hand up and hold it there. I want to pray for you. And you just say, Lord, I'm here, but I'm not. My heart, just keep it up nice and high. A defiant statement. Yes, Lord, I'm listening. Put your hand up, keep it there. You're saying, I want your grace, Lord. I want you to help me. And now, Lord, over these brothers and sisters whose hands are raised today, I pray that in this moment, you'd begin to pour out special grace upon them so that real, tangible change can happen. Lord, help them to find one issue, to turn from it, to seek the help of other brothers and sisters, and by your grace, to see you begin to change them. Thank you, Lord, that you're ready to pour out grace upon them. You, you knew that they were hard-hearted. This is not a surprise to you. You still love them. You still poured out all your judgment on Christ for them, and now there is an inexhaustible well of grace ready and available to them if they will confess their sins. Thank you that in that moment, God, you are faithful and just to forgive them. And so brothers and sisters who have your hands raised, if it is a genuine confession of your sin and a genuine repentance, you need to know that in this very moment, your sins are as far from you as the east is from the west, and new change can happen beginning today. So Lord, help us to believe that truth. We raise our hands and say, Lord, I'm listening. We thank you and praise you that you're our King and our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.